Malachi 2, verses 5 through 9. John will continue today as he uh, builds on the covenant of Levi. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Hopefully everybody's doing well. It's finally starting to cool off a little bit outside. I say finally. I don't actually care for winter. So it is what it is. Um, so thank you uh, to Pastor John for, for reading that. Um, and as will often happen um, in Sunday school, uh, Jim was teaching a lot about, uh, about covenants. And I kept thinking, oh, I wish I would have pulled that thought in as well. Uh, so the overlap continues. Um, today we have uh, four verses um, that we are that we're looking in, and we see some profound truth um, about living in, in a call to action. And certainly, there's a, a call to action to the, the priests who immediately receive this, but there is some carry forward for us today as well. Um, and so, one thing that we'll see in our text today is. What's really important for us as we live in a world that's confused, as we live in a world that has fallen, is that when we come here, we're not here for entertainment, we're here for truth. And so we'll, we'll focus in on that as we, as we come to Malachi. The fifth verse of the second chapter says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. And so we find ourselves then in this second chapter. We're still in um, kind of this focus that was drawn uh, from the first verse of the, of the second chapter. So we're still continuing on from that. And now, O oh priests, this command is for you. Verse 1 of the second chapter starts. So we know who's in view are the priests. Uh, God, through his prophet Malachi, is speaking, and this command is for the priests. He's called attention to the priests through his messenger Malachi, and he says to them in the second verse, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And so last week we noted that there 
that there's a call to return in this second verse. If you will not listen, and what that means, if you're a parent, or if you're not a parent, if you've been a child, if you will not listen, means you have an opportunity to listen. It just tells you what's going to happen if you don't. This means you can listen. And so much then of what followed that second verse was compelling you, wooing you, telling you why you should listen. Not only are you able to listen, but you really should. And here's why. And it was pretty intense. And we skipped over a lot of it last week. We'll talk about it a little bit today. So the prophet Malachi has introduced a certain focus on the priesthood and then gives the priesthood a call to return. And that call to return, we said last week, if you recall, was twofold. Fairly easy formula. One, listen. And for some of us, that's difficult. We're too busy knowing the answer. We're too busy knowing what's right already. We're not really listening. We're just thinking about what our argument against that may be. Number one was listen. Number two was take to heart. Maybe you know somebody who's a yeah, butter. That's what happens when you don't take something to heart. You say, yeah, but God doesn't understand my circumstances. Oh, well, poor simple God must not understand you. The twofold formula for the priests to return was to listen and to take heart. Now, both of these are focused on their knowing and holding the word as the center of defining everything about their lives. Their center of defining their decisions was to be the word. Which we too have, and even in a sense, more fully, the word. And so we continue from that as the platform that's being delivered to the priests in verse 5 and 6. So we read in in those verses, my covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was found in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. So here we are in the middle of this passage that we said, Malachi chapter 2 and verse 1 says is directed to the priests. There's been this twofold formula for return where God has said, you should return. Here's all the reasons why. And now he describes this covenant with him. Him being Levi, the Levitical line, the line that all the priests would come through. And he describes, he gives a picture of what a, what a good Servant, what a well-serving priest would have been doing. No wrong was found in his lips, and he walked with God in peace and uprightness. This is describing the descendants of Levi, who the priests are from over the nation of Israel. They have a life and peace, those two things together, kind of a complete life, really. So through this covenant with Levi, the descendants came to a full life and peace. 
I tell my kids all the time, look, if you find a way to live at peace, things will be so much better. And in all areas of your life, find a way to live at peace around you when you go to school. Find a way to live at peace in your environments. Find a way to live at peace in our home. I have five kids. A little bit of peace at home would be fantastic sometimes. And life is more enjoyable that way. I give them so much more leeway, leeway when, when things are just peaceful at home, you know? To some degree, I kind of don't care what you're doing. I trust that you're functioning well. And so God, through the prophet Malachi, says that they've got this complete life when the priests have no untruths on their lips, when their hearts are pure, when they're walking uprightly with God, the whole nation prospers. And remember, Israel is called to be a nation of priests. So the covenant that came to the priesthood and to the priestly line was one that offered a complete life, a covenant of fear. Fear. So the people... The priests, in verse 5, had been warned in verse 3. So look back with me, if you will, at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. They're now freshly reminded that the full life offered up through God's covenant with the priests living in fear, because living outside of God's boundaries for life and for worship can enact some strange consequences. I mean, our primary desire, our primary motivation for alignment with God should be pleasing Him. That really should be our goal. Now, there's lots of other circumstantial things that can definitely happen when we're outside of God's will, but we're, we shouldn't be looking for a book, 12 Steps to a Better Life. We shouldn't be trying to make every day be a Friday. We should be looking to be pleasing to a holy and righteous God, living as He's commanded us. And as we do that, if He should see fit, sometimes things order up a little bit better. When we live according to God's will, sometimes things order up better. But that's not why we live according to His will. It's not like a magic formula that we can manipulate to have an easier life, right? Maybe following after God in some ways gives us a harder life. We should be okay with that too because God is the treasure, not these outcomes. We live in a world where moth and rust destroy. We live in a world where um, sometimes the, 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 the people that rule over us, the people in places of government are confused, are sinful, are not believers, see things completely out of alignment with us. And sometimes that will cause great friction for us. It'll manifest itself in lots of different ways. Does that mean that we're not in right alignment with God? No. It just means we live in a, a world that groans under the strains of creation, and that's actually normal. I want to leave you with a... This is, I know that's usually how a closing sounds. Relax. Don't get excited. You, know, you're, you see Cracker Barrel in the future. And I go eat with the Christians. No, nope. no poor tipping and busy restaurants for you. 
I will leave you with a bit of homework, which is to read a story in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 25, verses 6 through 18. And we see this story of the priestly duty that is to be performed in accordance with God's revealed will. It's the story we'll see there. It's the story of Phineas. And in this story, Phineas takes some fairly significant action to restore things. As the priest, and his priestly duty to restore things, to right order with God. And does what the priestly line is supposed to do, which is reveal God's will for the good of the people to bring them into alignment with God. And that's the priest's very real job in charge. This is how God has covenanted with them to live and for Israel to exist. In Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, we see the covenant before us. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It's a covenant of fear. The obedient line of Levi. And by fear, I mean like actual fear. <laughs> you know, like I don't know how many of you have a, had a heavy-handed father. Um, maybe don't pay attention necessarily to how right or wrong he was in that, but you can... Imagine when sometimes in, in some houses, in some environments, dad gives the look. You know, everybody thinks mom has a look. But when dad breaks his out, it can be fairly terrifying. Generally speaking, folks do what he says. And that kind of a fear can cause us to back out of immediately a very bad situation. The fear of the Lord can cause us to do that when we understand who God is, when we really see God for all that he's done, speaking things into existence, that's fairly differentiated. Telling nothing to become thing. It's not like you started with a big pile of dirt, built up a globe, formed Pangea, which of course broke apart over a period of millions of years, shifted all over the globe, and made a new looking you know, globe. You're used to seeing it flat, you know where the continent of Africa is the same size as Florida, basically. God created everything, all of its complexities. And when you get down to it, it's fairly hard to deny that all of life is based on a creation. The very fact that people can reproduce people is pretty amazing. There's some pretty specific stuff that makes that happen. It's all a matter of creation. Everything is designed to continue to recreate, to reproduce. God made it in that way. The book of Romans says that it can plainly be seen that there's a God. You'd be a fool to look at all of creation and go, no, that showed up. Like a literal fool. And so this covenant of fear 
says that the priesthood feared him and stayed in awe of his name. Now, it's not like when Sony first came up with this robot dog, um, when the internet was young and fun, and, and um, I knew a guy that used to steal credit cards because it was easier to do back then. You didn't have the CCV code. That's probably why it exists now. Um, but he bought this really expensive robot dog with a stolen credit card from a loaf crack credit card generator. And this dog would be trained. Um, and he and his buddies would just hit the dog all the time. And so the dog got, you know, you're supposed to be able to sit and it was supposed to be able to want to make you happy. But when his buddies were done messing with it, all it would do was kind of twitch in the corner because it didn't know if it was going to be rewarded or if it was going to get hit, right? The fear of the Lord is not like that. It doesn't cause us to just hunker down and not know what to do. It causes us to have a fuller life because it points us to what's good for us in God's grace and in God's mercy. You read the whole left half of the Bible, so much of it is about setting aside parameters to create a community of people that can coexist in peace. And you look at all the outside nations. Um, you look at the Assyrians. You look at all of these. They, they did not get along like that because they didn't live with the kinds of constraints that came from God's revealed character against people. It's one of the things that makes it so fascinating to look at the way that Jesus lived his life. And we talked about that even just this morning with the, um, with the Sabbath. Jesus satisfied all of that law, but the people would have said so many times he was an abject violation of the Sabbath, but he wasn't. God's character lived so compellingly inside of a, a fallen world. And so living in fear of God actually causes us to live in a way that we have an abundance and a richness of life. We have a peace about us. In all circumstances, Paul would talk about it. He has learned to live in little and he has learned to live in much. So the, the abundance of life that we live is, is outside of any material blessing. The abundance of life that we live as Christian believers is knowing that the God of all creation cares about us. And that is incredible. So the covenant that came down through the priestly line brought with it a complete life through a covenant of fear. And so it's good for us to live that way to God's glory. A covenant of fear. So now, this priestly line through Levi these priests that Malachi is looking to are being called to account. They're being called on the carpet, really. I remember being in this very scenario a few times, not this exact scenario, but being called to the carpet. Had a hard time with rule following in the army. The army likes rule following. And so... Um, you know, when you get in trouble that's significant enough that you get something called an Article 15, of which I'm a multi-time graduate, uh, there's a very specific way that you're supposed to conduct yourself in this situation. You're supposed to, you're walked to the commander's door, you're supposed to knock on it three times. You're permitted in, and then you come in and there's a council of people that are sitting in front of you and they talk to you about you being a terrible person. And so there's a sense in which this is the kind of thing that's going on with the priests. 
Because the priests aren't priests because their daddy was. I mean, there's a sense in which that's true. But they still have a duty to fulfill. And that's why they're being called on the carpet. They haven't been doing it. And so verse 3 says, I'm gonna, he starts talking about turning their blessings to curses, says they're going to spread dung on their face. Okay, if you're not used to the word dung, that's poop. The, 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 what God is describing is a total shame that's being brought on them because they're outside of His will. And it's very significant because these are the people that the kingdom of priests, priests are supposed to fall in line. This is how they know God. And so they're not just failing at some duty. They're failing at the very duty that aligns people to God's character and God's will and makes them be His children and gives them parameters to live within so that a watching world looks and says, oh my gosh, a kingdom of priesthood is so much different, so much richer than everything else we know. I want to go find out about that. I want to sit in the court of the Gentiles. I want to hear from this law of God. I want to be brought into that. And so you see it's so significant that the priests were not fulfilling their duties because now people weren't hearing about the very God of the universe. It's significant. And so the two-part formula to call them back into their duty is to fix all of this problem. And we said last week that a priest who just wakes up and wears a uniform and doesn't do what they're supposed to do is not a priest, that's a cosplayer. And if you don't know what cosplay is, it's uh, John Nicholas does it. He goes to these conventions and dresses up like Marvel characters, right? It's these people that build these kind of like intricate costumes and they go play out like, like uh, the Marvel superheroes. There's a sense in which the, the priests have been doing this. Um, last week we talked about furries in cosplay. If you weren't here, I'm sorry. I know it sounds weird, but when I sit at the dinner table with a man dressed as a bunny on my right-hand side, I don't have to show him why he's not a bunny, right? I don't have to say, hey, dude, here's the thing. You're not actually a rabbit. Because his cosplay is another type of being. He knows he's not of that type. But the unfaithful priest is of the same type as the faithful priest. So God, through the prophet Malachi, is helping lay out the ways that they're not fulfilling the priesthood for the benefit of them. So they don't have the dung face thing going down, because that's bad. But also for the benefit of all of the people. Because they believe, and you see, I mean, this, this, this never stops, right? Jesus is addressing the very um, nature of people believing that just because they're in Abraham, they're a believer. Maybe you think just because you were raised in the church, you're a believer. Maybe you think because your grandmother was a good believer, you are like a great grandchild of God. There is no such thing. And so by steps and by ways of division, God is helping these priests, and I would say, very patiently, extending grace to them to return. Malachi 2.6, helping them see, though they're the same type, the substance is different. Verse 6, true instruction 
was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Now, if you can imagine that you're the priest in view of Malachi 2.1, you're called on the carpet, you've gone into the room, knocked on the door the three times, you're standing in front of the commander, your supervisor's behind you, this is a, you know, you feel the gravity of this situation all in the same moment, and then the, 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 the positive example is given. Instruction was in his mouth, no wrong was found in his lips, he walked with me in peace. In a sense, maybe you feel convicted, but also at the same time, isn't this amazing freedom? This is what's available to you, walking with God in peace? Why wouldn't you want that? Wouldn't you be willing to set aside your stubbornness in order to walk with God in peace? And so before we jump in too deep, there's a bit of a poetic structure that's here. In verses 6 and 7, there's some sameness, there's some likeness between these two verses that are designed to really grab the priests, that are designed to pull them into the story, that are designed to help them see the differences between the positive example and the negative example, or them, unfortunately, in this moment for them. There's almost like a comparison and contrast type list for the priests to focus on. The lips and the knowledge and the outworking of those things. In verse 6, we're going to see proper rulings in the positive example's mouth. Nothing perverse on his lips. In verse 7, we'll see that the lips of the priest guard knowledge. And men seek a verdict from his mouth. These are pulled together. Verse 6 is pointing at true instruction, or true Torah, or true law. This is how the law should be applied to life. Because the law really is not just this kind of you know, uh, black and white list of things that is drudgery that you need to do. The law was God's grace showing His character lived out in the world. This is what my character would be like in a broken, fallen world. And so that's part of the reason that we have such a hard time with something like the law, is it's hard to uphold holiness. And when I say hard, hear me, I mean you can't do it. Not one of us, not me, not you, not John Nicholas, none of us could uphold the character of God. And that should be so easy to understand. But functionally, it's difficult because we're full of pride. We're little, like, just pride machines. You're so proud of yourself, I promise. Uh, you know, all we would have to do to find your pride is to put a video camera in your car and just wait for someone to cut you off. You know how furious you get at people in the car? Don't you think that's strange? Like, some, I mean, I've seen some of you guys get furious when somebody cuts you off. And it comes from a place of, you know who I am? Like, forget about it. You would think you have never once made a mistake in your whole life. You have never accidentally pulled out in front of someone's car, right? You never drive looking at your text down here and wander into the other lane. The priests were to give true instruction. And what's the result? A complete life, peace, walking with God. They weren't supposed to wear a costume and hold a role. 
They were to help people work out God's revealed character and will. I'm going to read quickly from Haggai 2, 10 through 17. It'll come up on the, on the screens to my side. So you can make a note to look at this later. You can turn there now. Um, Haggai 2.10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by, the, by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it with his fold of bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with the people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so, with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. And so what we see in Haggai is the people learning or being able to go to to understand how to work out the word of the law of the Lord. They can get interpretation for life. They can understand nuances in the law. They can get instruction Verse 6 says that there was no wrong found on his lips, meaning that type of priest that they were to be modeling after, that they were to follow after. They were to have been studied in the Word. They were to help people rightly divide and understand God's revealed Word and how that works out in the world around them, how they should be, what their character should be, how to return to God when it's time to return, when it's time for repentance. Verse 6 would say there's no wrong found on his lips and he walked with me in peace and uprightness. Maybe we're thinking of a pre-fallen Adam walking in the garden with God in the cool of the day. Maybe Noah. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. Following after God while being mocked by the world around him trying to lead a family in a world, making open, intense mockery of everything that their family was doing, following after God. But he walked with God in peace. I think sometimes we can tend to walk with God in anger, so angry that the world around us sees things differently than we do. And I think sometimes we would do well to slow down right, and really evaluate that. Where does that anger stem from? 
It can start from a good place, but it can work out to a bad place. It can push people away. It can start to look like we're reacting from pride, like we think we're better than anyone else around us. We're not. None seeks after God. No, not one. There's no single person in all of the kingdom of God who is worthy of the salvation that they have. There's nothing that we should be prideful of. I mean, we really have nothing to stand on and say, you see, I'm better than everyone else. We are better than no one else. We are all beggars before a holy and righteous God. Every single one of us. So funny, any, any face you see come out of the baptismal water, anybody that you see who says, I am a saved believer in Christ, means that their sin pushed them so far from God that it took the very Son of God to bleed and die on their behalf so that they can be made right with God. There was no other way for anyone who's a Christian to come to God than by Jesus' death. There's nothing that we have to brag about. There's nothing in us that's good. John 3.19 even shows, John 3.16 to John 3.19 shows that we love the world and the darkness with such a great passion that we'll do anything for darkness and we constantly avoid light unless God does something in us. And that's every single person. And so it's important that the lips of the priest guard knowledge. And so the priests here in view in chapter 2 and verse 1 who were faithful to the covenant are now given a contrast to the cosplay priests of Malachi's warning who need to turn back and absorb God's revealed will in His Word so that they're teaching true instruction. Because their, their very lips are different than those of the covenant line. They are like in form, and they're like in lineage, but they're different in substance. And so maybe they'd do well to hear this next part and be cut in verse 6. And he turned many from iniquity. It probably burns a little bit because they're probably thinking back to their own ministry in the community. Probably not seeing lots of fruit of people turning away from iniquity as a result of their ministry. Maybe they're thinking, oh, those, those priests are so different than, than I am. The, the very words of their lips, their very motives, the very fruits of their work are different than mine. I was just told that based on my works, I deserve to have poop on my face. But I could turn. I could turn from that. I could listen to the Word of God. I could take it to heart. And then maybe have a fuller life. Maybe live at peace with God. Maybe walk with Him. In respect of anything else in my past and in my history, I could turn and walk with God. Now, we said the interesting thing about studying left of Matthew is we get a great picture of the character and nature of God. Same thing in the right side as well. But certainly, the character and nature of God 
we get to see a lot about left of Matthew. However, because we have Matthew and right, we have even more information that shines light back on the Old Testament. So 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's this element in God where he's always wooing. He's always putting a truth in front of people that turns them back. And even though the scripture says that none seeks after God, no, not one, then when we find ourselves seeking after God, it's, it's not of us. It's something in us. It's God working in us. It's God drawing us. And God always wins, right? He always wins. If he is drawing you, if he is wooing you, then he will get you. Malachi 2, 7 and 9. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. This section is the satisfaction of the structure in verse 6. The differentiation between the lips of the faithful priests and the covenant and those that are now called to give account in chapter 2. And so, how, how did we get here? Right? How, how, did, how did they get here, maybe, we would ask. Verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." And so this is keenly important for us as well today to see this undoing, to see that the, the, the priestly line had started to show partiality, which means there's probably some kind of a benefit for them in the way that they delivered the law, the way that they delivered the message, the way that they delivered the ordinances. Maybe they started doing it in a way that they thought would create a greater environment for them. Maybe it was more comfortable for them the way that they were serving. For us today... We know that there's no order among people. The, what would be recognized as church leadership are not over and above anyone else. I think I might have told the story before a, a church not here in another state that I was a part of. We had a, a famous musician come in and he asked if uh, he could have um, special access to the sanctuary so that he could avoid having to walk among the people um, and then that he could have a reserved area with some security and that he could have a special time where he could leave church through the side door to avoid people. You can imagine the answer. <laughs> he did not join us. It's good to live in fear of God's glory. It's good to be consistent with God's revealed will in Scripture. And maybe even to help others come into the same. There is an eternal warning through the priesthood of Malachi's day, I would argue, to the pastors of today. In verse 7, 
For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. It's in a similar way that the priest was to teach God's revealed will. Jesus, being the final priest, of course, satisfied that priestly structure. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12 says that when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law. And so then Jesus comes along and Jesus satisfies the law. Jesus establishes church. In Matthew 16, 18, he says, And I tell you, Peter, it is on this rock that I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 22 said that the church would be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I'll pause. Have you ever seen a building of a house before? See a lot of them going on uh, these days. Lots of new little neighborhoods. I talk about like neighborhood seed. You sprinkle them out and lots of lake houses kind of sprout up. And you see the, the different trades people moving through the neighborhood, right? You've got a, a group of roofers and they go from each one. Um, you've got flooring people. They go to each one. What I have yet to see is the foundation crew coming back and pouring the foundation back on top of another pre-existing foundation. You know, where the either the roof has to get higher or the ceilings get really short, right? Because there's like three foundations stacked. It's just one foundation. And that's how Jesus built his church, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the pastor's teaching in the gathered church should focus on the Word of God, the Word of a holy, righteous, sovereign God, His revealed will. No cosplay, like was warned to the priests in our passage. No neglecting God's will living outside of his revelation, acting the part of a Christian on Sunday, but living crazy all week long. No telling half-truths. No agreement that we'll get together on Sunday, but from the pulpit we won't talk about Jesus, we won't talk about hell, we won't talk about salvation, because it might make people uncomfortable and we wouldn't get to have as big of a crowd. That would affect our giving, which would affect our salaries, which would affect our spending budget. We wouldn't be able to build a transformer robot in the, in the narthex for the children to climb all over, right? We wouldn't have as much bubble budget and any more smoke money. No cosplay. No neglecting God's will. People should seek truth in their church and find instruction through... That faithfulness, perhaps some, through the word, would be turned to repentance. That should be the aim. Nothing more. I think of Isaiah 55, verse 11. And so then as Christians that live today, having seen the glory of Christ come, satisfied everything about the law, having lived perfectly, tested and tried in all ways like us, but without sin. I mean, that should blow us away. 
You want to talk about someone with every opportunity to sin. And certainly I mean all the ways that we are, because Scripture says that, tested and tried and always like us, yet without sinning. But I also mean in unique ways that were placed on Christ, tested directly by Satan after a period of intense fasting, presented with the opportunity to turn rocks into bread, presented with the opportunity to be a ruler over much. And responding, you know, we, 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 said, we said before, for the past couple of weeks, if, if we set up a rack up front and filled it full of swords and said, at the conclusion of service today, we're going to have a lesson on swordsmanship, you'd be like, what a dork. Like there was this guy that used to come into a class I had all the time, and he was like super into swords. Like as soon as you meet somebody that's into swords, you know that's a nerd. This dude was way into swords. Like he'd come in like wearing like a metal you know, and, and he'd be waiting for everybody to ask him what his medal was for, and it'd be some like goofy sword thing. But if we up leveled that conversation a little bit and said, these swords are here not just because we're nerds, which we are, um, but because when you leave here today, you're going to be attacked when you walk out of that door. All of the sudden, your interest in the swordsmanship class after service goes up a level. When we watch Jesus being tempted and tried and always like us, being uniquely tempted by the enemy directly, we see his response is Scripture. Wasn't it said? He always responds back with Scripture. And so for us, that's how we should want to arm ourselves up as well for a world that is going to attack us in all kinds of ways. Um, it's going to attack us at the foundations of our beliefs. It's going to attack us in the same ways that the serpent did in the garden by coming to Eve and saying, well, did God really say that what you think he said is true is true? And the temptation for us is always to take the easy way out and go, eh, you know, I mean, not really. No, I don't think that, I don't think that God created everything in six days. It was probably a million years. Or, no, I don't really think it's sinful um, for me to do these things, I just think it was a strong suggestion. We need to be prepared, for, especially in a world around us that's so loose on so many things, to say, yes, God did say that that is not good for us. And I understand that you don't believe it's true, but that's, you know, that's between you and God. It doesn't mean that I change the way that I live because of that. And the world around us is redefining truth at such a fast, fast rate. It's actually really hard to keep up with what's true anymore or what's generally accepted as being true. And so the scripture becomes even more important um, to understand what God says about life. That as you start to read these passages in, in, your, in the Bible about what will life be like in the final days as things really start to wind down, um, people collect after themselves teachers who will, who will tell them interesting things that it says itch their ears. Now, I'd say that's been going on for a very long time, but it's certainly prevalent today as well. Um, you can find a teacher that'll tell you almost anything you want to hear. Um, there's a guru named Cornelius, and you can pay him to come to your party, and you know, uh, you can touch Cornelius's tummy, right? You can feel Cornelius. Um, you can turn on the television, and, and you can be healed. Like if you were here just this morning, um, uh, the cars up and down the street, there was a healing service that happens at noon today down the road somewhere. You can go down there and you can, you can get healed. So if you can't walk, you'll be able to afterwards. Um, if somebody wants to, when you go down there at noon, let them know the address of Harrisburg Hospital. 
okay? Because uh, as it turns out, you don't even have to wait for people that are hurting to, come, uh, to show up at service at noon. You can just go to Harrisburg Hospital um, and you can heal all the sick people inside there. They would uh, love it. In fact, some of them are paying for that. Uh, and so you can go deliver that service for free. Um, we talked about Jesus just this morning, right? Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus comes in. It is the Sabbath day. There is a man with a withered hand, right? Uh, Jesus heals it. New hand, like, grows back. You imagine withered means small, right? So it got big again. I don't think it was, like, oversized, you know, like, huge. I think it was, like, a normal hand, probably. Um, and they see him do this miracle. And what do they say? Oh, my gosh, you're incredible. You just healed someone's hand. Like, he can use it now. It was withered and was lame, and he wasn't able to do things, which is a bad thing in an agrarian society, because how do you make any money? It's not like you type on a keyboard. You do, like, actual work. But no, they didn't appreciate the miraculous thing that just happened. They said, you healed on the Sabbath, you stinker. What is it that we will go after anything but truth? What is it about truth that, for whatever reason, we're kind of resistant towards as a people? And I don't mean that just about them, about those other people. It's all of us. We all resist God's truth. And so if you find yourself sitting here today and you're a believer and you just you sit before the scripture, you say, God, just teach me. Thank him for that, because that's his work on your life. And when you find yourself communicating with someone that doesn't feel like that, pray for them because he's sovereign and you want him to work on their life. Don't be mad at them. They don't know. The, the truth of the cross, scripture tells us the truth of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying. And for them, it is foolishness. It's not that they're just being rude towards you. They think you think something really stupid. And you've probably been there. You've probably been to church as an unbeliever before at some point in your past. Maybe you're sitting here now going, this guy is an idiot. Maybe you've, you've, you've I mean, just, I remember going to church as an unbeliever and, and hearing the songs and it just, oh man, it used to bug me so deeply. Like, these idiots are singing these words like little robots. They probably don't even know what they're saying. And then, by the grace of God, I was saved under a sermon. No one came to me and, and shared the gospel with me, per se. I was saved through the word of God, taught plainly. And I remember hearing it, and I was like, I'm a funny dude, and I don't have any jokes to crack right now. Like, this is real. I never knew that this book told real stories from real life across a real earth and real history with people that actually live that are verifiable in places that you can go visit today, and it tells one story. This is problematic for me because the story that this lays out makes a lot of sense about me because it describes me not as awesome, it describes me as a mess. And that makes sense. And a book written by people to try to trick them into following some God so that they would give their money wouldn't make them look this crappy. And so this describes me. And then my next problem was that this book requires a remedy. It's a very clear remedy. It requires that I, before a holy, righteous God, repent, turning from trusting myself, turning from getting my understanding about the world, from my own smarts, 
which you look back over your life and some of the decisions you've made, that's the outworking of your smarts. You're going to rely on that. Some of you guys have done some stupid stuff. Myself, believe me, I've got you beat. We could do a one-up contest. I will win. But God, in his great mercy, sent his son Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, who lived perfectly in all ways, and was then made the captain of our salvation. He was made perfect for our salvation. And so what we need to see with clear eyes is that we are fallen short of God. And that works itself out in all kinds of ways. Depending how stubborn and hard-hearted you are, God has to let you see it in various degrees. Some of you were saved at four years old in the church. Praise God for that. Some of you uh, were saved at 70 years old. Praise God for that. Praise God that He reaches any of us and saves us. And so the requirement then for someone who has fallen short of God's glory is that we repent, we turn, we see how good Jesus is, we turn from trusting ourselves, we trust Jesus, and then we're His. And then we're His. We're secure in His grasp. Uh, Jesus, Jesus describes Himself as being able to keep all that the Father has given Him. So we trust Him. We trust Him, and then we participate together in our, our local church. We participate with people in discipleship. We become sanctified and become more and more into the image of Jesus over time, by degrees. And you know how you get somewhere by degrees? You ever watch, uh, uh, um, you ever watch someone sprint downhill? It's great. I think that's what sanctification is like, you know? You get excited and you start going, your legs get going too fast. You can't keep up and maybe you biff it and you slide across the grass and you kind of look up like all crazy and you're like, okay, let's get back at it. Let's trust the Lord. I got a little ahead of myself there, but that's okay. It's okay. Back to Jesus we go. So if, if you're here this morning and you know, maybe you've been a believer for, for a long time, I don't define what that means for you. Maybe you're 12 and three years is a long time. Right? It's a quarter of your life. Maybe you've been a believer for 50 years. We need to be re-encouraged that it's by the work of Jesus that you're saved, not by your own. So if, if you've been that believer who for a quarter of your life, for three years, or, or for 70 years, and you're struggling right now, just know that returning to Christ is always there for you. It doesn't mean you're being re-saved. It means you're refocusing on your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're, you're a brand new Christian, you're super zealous and you're really excited, but you don't even know that right now. You just think this is normal. Go with that. Talk to people. Your mouth is going to move faster in your brain, but that's okay. We're going to help you out. Maybe you're sitting here and, and you're like, I said earlier, you, you hear people singing these songs and just, man, it just drives you nuts. But maybe for whatever reason, the Lord just reached you this morning. I pray that... There's, there's no magic words that I can give you to pray. But you, in a moment of prayer before God, saying, God, I'm fallen and I need you. Will you save me repenting, turning from trusting yourself, turning to trusting, now I trust you, Jesus, for everything. That's how you become saved. And then let someone know after service that, that you just did that, that the Lord did that in you, that you responded in that way, and we'd love to walk with you. Join me, let's pray. God, I do thank you that you have given us such a wonderful example of people across your whole word. God, that doesn't give us an example of wonderful, perfectly upright people.
people that we should model after, but people that realized who they were in light of your holiness and turned to you, who became believers in the same way that we do, by your grace through our faith. So God, if you give us an ounce of faith, I pray that we would act on that, that we would turn from trusting ourselves and turn to you. Um, God, I pray for, for us as a church, for those that are tasked with teaching the word here, God, that we would take that responsibility um, with, a, with a very significant gravity. And we wouldn't squander that, that we wouldn't be light on our studies, that we wouldn't be okay with presenting the truth as we guess at it, but God, that it would be a matter of work and prayer and that you, God, will honor that. And the outworkings of that would be at living at peace with you, uprightness of our walk in God, people looking in and coming here and being refreshed by your grace and mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You would.